Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. Well, kia ora, everyone. Welcome along to the show. I'm glad you could join me as this week we're going to be speaking with Jenny Gill. Now, Jenny has decades of experience working in philanthropy. She's been involved in a number of different organizations, including Foundation North, Vodafone Foundation, and she used to be involved with the award of Fulbright scholarships as well. So we have a wide-ranging conversation about her life and try to dive a bit deeper with her to understand what she's learned through the decades of working in philanthropy. I know you're going to enjoy this conversation, so we're going to get right into it. But if you do, you might want to check out some of the more than 170 in the back catalog. I'm just trying to build up a collection that consists of stories of inspiring people who are doing amazing things with their lives. There's also a bunch of content at theseeds.nz. And a big thank you to those of you who are leaving ratings and reviews in Apple Podcasts and other platforms, and those of you who are telling your friends about Seeds as well. It really does help to spread the messages, so thank you very much. Now let's get into this conversation with Jenny. So it's a real pleasure to welcome Jenny Gill to the podcast. Thank you for joining me. You're welcome. Lovely to be here. Yeah. So what we do on Seeds is we're trying to uncover a little bit about people's history, where they're from, what sort of factors and things um, helped shape them, and then talk about what they do today or what they've been involved in. Um, and just try to connect some dots sometimes between um, you know, childhood days and early days and then what the person has gone on to be involved in. Um, and in your case, I'm really interested because I was at the Philanthropy New Zealand conference last year, mm-hmm. and you gave a, you gave a, a, had to be a short version of some of your observations of what you've seen over the years. And I know you've been involved in a number of different organizations, so I'm really keen to find out more about that. Um, but to begin with, if we could just go back to the start of your life and just hear a little bit about where you're from. Okay, thank you. Well, um, I was actually born in... Um, lower hut and my dad was in the New Zealand army so I was born pretty soon after in the early 50s just Mm -hmm. after the war and my parents had met when my dad came back from World War II and he was a teacher in the in the army and so they were living in Trentham when I was born and we moved to Waiuru and I actually spent the first eight years of my life in Waiuru which Mm -hmm. raises lots of people's eyebrows but actually it was an extraordinary place to be a child because we were a village Mm. Of a whole lot of families, almost all the men had been in the war and had come back to the war. Mm. It was all mothers at home. I mean, there was no work for the women. Right. But you knew everybody and everybody knew you. Yeah. Um, so community, knew, community was, real, was just a natural part of where you yeah. were. Yeah. Interesting. There was, however, there was a very interesting hierarchy in the community because everybody knew what rank everybody else's father held. So in some ways it was quite uh, an equalizing community, but in other ways there was also a very clear hierarchy. Right. Interesting. Well, let's talk about that in a minute. I'm just curious as well, though, for your father Mm -hmm. and the influence that the war had had on him. Um, did he did he talk about his experiences much growing up? Or I, I, I tend to hear that people are either they'll share about it or it's kind of like a, a door that shuts and yeah. they don't talk about it much. I'm just curious. So, so it's interesting because his father died shortly after returning to New Zealand from the First World War. And so he grew up um, under the shadow of the First World War and the loss of his father. And because um, he, wasn't, he was born in 1920, so in fact he was at university when the war broke out. So he only was in the army for the last couple of years of the war. I think the seminal experience for him was he was being prepared as an officer to lead, or not to lead, but to be part of the invasion of Japan. And I I do remember him saying to me when I was protesting against the nuclear bomb when I was at high school, that if it wasn't for the nuclear bomb, I wouldn't be here. Right. Uh, Which was quite a confronting um, conversation. But he didn't have a terrible war. I think his father did in World War I. Yeah. But he he didn't, just simply because he came into the war later. But certainly his friends did. I mean, a number of our close family friends, um, the fathers had been in concentration camps. Yeah, right. uh, Both German and Japanese concentration camps. And that certainly had, you could see the the influence it had on 
on those men and on their families. Well, the thing I find interesting about that is that I lived for five years in Japan and I had an experience because I went to Hiroshima and they've got this、uh, museum there about the bombing and how awful it was. And I wrote to my grandfather、um, soon after that. This was sort of 1999 or so. And I was telling him about going to this museum and how it had affected me. And he wrote back a very strong letter. Probably similar to what you're talking about because he had been in the United States in the Navy and he was on one of the ships off the shore、uh, preparing to go to war、huh. and, yeah, yeah. And, and, and being briefed that basically, that, and I, prob- I do believe this, probably the Japanese people were not going to surrender. And no, we were, they were going to die. That's what my father says. Yeah. We,、exactly. we, were, going di- we were going to die. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. So,、mm. but he came back then without having had to go through that. Yeah, that's right. That sort of traumatic experience. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So, I'm keen on to understand that community where you've got the community, but you also know the rank of everybody. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>、um, how did that play out in practical reality then? Well, there's, there are two really lovely stories. And my mother is.、Um, Quite a stroppy woman, and, and、um, she tells a story about how, when there was always a camp commander, and、um, that there was a, a new commander arrived, and that, that the commander's wife announced that she expected the wives of the officers to call on her. And my、right. mother said, I don't call on anyone. And so she and a group of her friends didn't call and didn't get invited to whatever parties they would, you know, they would otherwise have been, have been invited to. So it was obviously quite, you know, quite strong. I also remember、um, a child in my class saying to me, because my grandmother brought me a watch when I learned to tell the time, and this little girl said to me, You have to give me that watch. And I said,、right. No, I don't. Why? And she said, Because my father's a colonel and your father's only a major. <laughs> wow, interesting. So, you know, there was, there was that undercurrent there, but at the same time, when, when my younger brothers and sisters were born, the baby, one of my, my sisters, was put in her cot and carried to the next door house.、Hmm. And she lived next door for the,、right. for the two weeks that my mother was in the maternity hospital. And then the cot with, with the baby and it was carried back again. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So there was that lovely sense of community. And you moved freely in and out of people's other families' houses. And, yeah. And yeah. I guess you felt safe and it was an environment of. Yeah. 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 Oh, interesting. So, how would you describe yourself at that age, sort of that young primary school age? What sort of things did you enjoy? And- well, I mean, I think,、um, I think I was probably quite, I wasn't particularly c- compliant, I don't think.、Mm-hmm. But I think from a very early age, I had quite a sense of what was right and what was wrong. And there was an interesting incident when I was six. And there used to be some children came in by bus from a little remote community called Hihitahi. And they came into Waiuru School. And, I, and in those days, the teachers would, would hit children. And this little girl got taken up to the front of the class and he lifted her dress up to whack her on the backside. And she had no underwear on. And I can remember being appalled A, that he was hitting her, and B, that even when he realized she didn't have underwear on, he still hit her. So even as a six year old, That really made an impression、me. on you. Yeah. It did. Yeah.、Mm. Huh. yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. I, I always wonder where things come from. You know, is it, are these learned things or is it just part of you, you know, natural that you would observe? Yeah.、That? I think it's both.、Mm. Um, I think we also, my parents always disagreed politically. So my mother always voted Labour and, and later in her life voted for values. And my father always voted for national and occasionally later for ACT. And so I think we grew up in a household where there was quite rigorous debate and you didn't have to agree.、Mm. You know, so we saw our parents arguing quite vigorously. And you know, during the Springbok tour, when I was,、um, I'd actually left home by then, but you know, going home and my mother was anti tour and my father was pro tour. Right. And they were arguing you know, over their evening sherry about it. So、yeah. you know, I think, I guess. That was quite a strong influence in our family. So there was, there was sort of a permission there that you、yeah. can have your own perspective, you can have your own view,、yeah. and probably observing your mother as well, not going to the welcome to the new,、yeah. um, the new person、yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I also think both of my parents were the first people in their families to go to university. 
um, you know, no cousins, no brothers, no sisters. They were both, for various reasons, went to university and they met at a post-grad teacher's course. So I think that also made a difference because it had set them both aside a little. You know, they both left, sort of left the communities they'd grown up in in order to go to university and been exposed to, you know, they were at... I mean, I've done a little bit of reading about the University of Auckland in the 30s and 40s, and there was a lot of really interesting thinkers mm. there at that, at that time. Yeah. And it was a fascinating time in world history as well, wasn't it? Sort of coming mm. out of the Great Depression and, and then the war happening, and there was a lot, of, a lot going on. <laughs> mm. Mm. There was, there was, yeah. 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 And so for you, as you're getting towards, you know, through your high school years, did you stay studying in that area or did you, um, yeah, was there boarding schools or something? Oh, no, like so, that? so the other really interesting thing my family did was my parents didn't want us to go to boarding school. So unlike most army families who moved around a lot, we moved to Wellington and my father took a desk job in Wellington. Okay. And I ended up... Um, going to Onslow College, which at the time was one of the more radical co-educational secondary schools in New Zealand. So I then, as a secondary school student, got exposed to a lot of really interesting teachers and, and quite an unusual educational environment, I think. Right. I don't know much about that school. So what, what had shaped it to become like that? Was it the influence well, of a certain person or just... It I think it's when I went there, it was 10 years old and it had been started as a state co-educational school. And I think the original principal and the group of staff that he, that he gathered around him, it attracted people with a liberal view of education. Mm. And um, for example, I was taught by um, Dame Karen Saul, who became the Secretary of Education. Um, a lot of the teachers were involved in the, um, the peace movement and drama and poetry and you know it was it right. was and you know people like Catherine Delahunty was um a couple of years behind me and starting a student council and you know it was a very very interesting school and one in which you were encouraged to think a little bit independently and yeah 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 oh interesting and at that time did you have a leaning in terms of what you enjoyed studying or did you have a a type of career that you thought you might end up in um, I really, really enjoyed history and geography and um, loved English literature and mm -hmm. wasn't particularly good at languages or maths or science. Um, I don't, I honestly think even though I was at quite a liberal school, there wasn't a strong sense that girls would have careers. There was mm -hmm. still a bit of a sense that you might become a teacher or a librarian and then you'd marry and have children. Right. Yeah. So it, I think I think the world changed very fast once we got to university because there was just yeah. so much going on in the 70s. Yeah. Well, why don't you take us through that that period of your life and describe what that was like? You know, what, what was university like? It was a time of rapid change, right? It, it was. I mean, when I first went to the university, um, so I went to Victoria University, I mean, some young women were still expected to wear kind of twin sets and pearls. And within, you know, a year we had, you know, Woodstock had just happened and all mm -hmm. of a sudden people started, you know, letting their hair grow long and, you know, it was just that whole kind of flowering of independent thought. And I think the other thing that was interesting about that time was there was no, um, there was no, there wasn't much internal assessment, so it was only exams at the end of the year. Right. So people like Germaine Greer would come to campus and the whole university would stop and listening to Germaine Greer. You know, so you you lived in, and, you know, we demonstrated against the Vietnam War was going on, you know, um, issues around abortion. And many of your lecturers were also involved in those issues. Right. And leading some of those movements. So yeah. it was very much a time where you were thinking about the status quo and, and you know, studying sociology, for example, or anthropology. Mm. Get into your thinking. And did you have a sense um, that there was a connection between what you were thinking and doing and, say, what was going on in America or other parts of the world? Um, like you mentioned Woodstock, for example, is kind of an emblematic moment in time. But was that something that it was like we're part of a global thing? Or Not very it, much so. Yeah. Very, very much so. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. Very aware of it. 
and of course, you know, music was taking off and mm. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So what did you end up studying at university? So I ended up majoring in sociology and um, really loved it, but wasn't particularly academic. I mean, I think I really enjoyed it, but it wasn't particularly academic. Mm-hmm. I mean, I got a you know, perfectly respectable bachelor's degree. And then um, I got married very young, as one often did in those days, and I'm still married to the same person. Mm-hmm. And we moved up to Auckland so that he could study engineering. And I um, ended up, after a couple of years, actually going to Teachers College mm-hmm. and um, taught in South Auckland. And I'm really glad that I, I went down the teaching track. I only taught for a year, but I learned a lot about myself and I learned a lot about um, South Auckland and, communi- mm. and communities and um, what, was, what was playing out in South Auckland mm. back so, then. So you mentioned you learned about yourself through that teaching what sort of things did you learn (laughs) well i think i think the interesting thing about um about the teachers college education was there was there was a much stronger focus than in university actually about Mm self-expression so you know i did art for the first time because we had because as a primary school teacher you were supposed to teach art um and Right, so so in order to teach the kids, you need to know something yeah. about this, and yeah. therefore yeah. you learn a you new skill. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think I think the, the group of teachers that we had at Auckland Teachers College in those days just really encouraged you to think about yourself and what your values were and how you would be what you know what you would be presenting not not presenting but what was it you were going to be taking into into the profession. Mm-hmm. Um, and there wasn't a lot of formal assessment. It was much more a year of kind of development and 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 discovery. Mm-hmm. And we got very passionate at the time. Um, the Summerhill A.S. Neil Summerhill School was you know was was in England and very prominent. So we we engaged in a lot of conversations about education and what's the purpose of education and what's your role as a teacher and. Mm. So in a way, it sounds like it helped you to articulate your own mission or the reason that you were there. It, it did. And then, of course, when I hit the classroom, it was a completely different story and I was completely unprepared <laughs> <laughs> for, being, for being in a, teach, a teacher in what you would now call a low decile school. Right. Um, and for various reasons, I only taught for one year. Um, I actually found it far too constraining I think so that the sort of idealism of teachers college didn't match didn't match the reality of um right. of the classroom but yeah. you know that that community that that I taught in um is the community that's now really um being hit hard by things like COVID mm. and unemployment and um so I did get an extraordinary insight into that community in that year and I'll, I'll forever be grateful because mm. it because it will never be just that place over there it was a yeah. place that you knew and you were involved and you you knew the kids you talked with the parents yeah it was right. yeah yeah interesting well just to finish off that bit about the what you learned mm-hmm. um through the process i'm i'm quite interested in that because i've been reading um the book by brene brown dare to lead it's called and one thing that she says is it's important to articulate what what you're here for, you know, what are your values? And I think that's sounds like that's in a way what you were doing through that year of working out what am I doing and what do I want to contribute? Yes, I I think so. And I think, I think in that sense, I'm very much a product of, you know, having gone to Sunday school as a six year old, having gone to, you know, liberal co-ed school, being at Victoria university in the seventies, it all kind of, it all builds. It doesn't, mm. it doesn't come out of nowhere, I don't think. Yeah. Well, that's what I find with the podcast because I've interviewed more than 170 people and you start seeing these threads that go through a life and then you realize, you know, it, there's so much behind the, the titles and the descriptions of what they do, you know, the parents and the education and all the other things as well. Yeah. So you get to that end of the year and did you know quite clearly this isn't for me? I want to try something else or? I did. I did. And yep. um, we had been very involved in Corso, which was 
then New Zealand's sort of preeminent aid organisation. So we'd been involved as volunteers and I got offered a job over the summer holidays. Mm-hmm. And it was a no-brainer and I walked away from teaching, Yeah, you know, without looking back. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So, so what happened next? So then I worked for Corso for a few years here in, in Auckland. So mm-hmm. I'm living in Auckland by then. And um, that was very interesting. So, so um, we were fundraising for overseas projects and we started as an organisation a conversation in New Zealand about poverty in New Zealand. Oh, okay. And the end result of that was um, Robert Muldoon was the Prime Minister at the time and he was so incensed by Corso talking about poverty in New Zealand and starting to fundraise for poverty in New Zealand that he took away the tax status that Corso oh, had. Really? It's <laughs> quite personal. It's, well, it's, and it's a perfect way to kill a not-for-profit organisation. Yeah. Because you take away, you take away their, their tax status. Wow. Um, but, you know, it was so prescient when you look back on it now, you mm. know, because we'd kind of grown up in New Zealand, I think, with a myth about egalitarianism and equal opportunity. And, mm. um, and then when you start to lift the cover and look at what was happening in communities in Northland and places like that. And I guess you'd had the practical introduction through the teaching. You'd actually yeah. seen some of these issues and you'd seen real poverty. Mm, mm. Yeah. Ah, interesting. And what year are we talking about then? This is sort oh, of I earlier mid seventies. So yeah, in the mid seventies. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, well, the, the, of course the words that we use today or recently is sort of the wellness, right? The, um, looking beyond just the, the numbers, but actually, um, looking at other factors as well. How do you measure the health of communities? So yeah, yeah. I'm sure I'm sure we'll circle back to this. <laughs> um, but but what happened next? What what? So 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 what happened next was then um, my husband and I went away for a year, as most young Kiwis do. But we actually spent nine months in Asia, and through that trip, we visited various aid projects that Corso had been involved in. And we'd also been involved in setting up the first trade aid shop in Auckland. And so we visited trade aid suppliers. So it was an extraordinary way to do your kind of OE because Mm. we dropped into and stayed with communities that we had a a relationship with, but we hadn't met before. Right. And it gives a bit of a structure to the trip. And and we met people um, that you would never you would never have had the opportunity as just a regular, you know, we had backpacks and long skirts and long hair and, you know, looked like all the other backpackers on the trains in India. But in fact, we went into quite small visit, quite small and remote villages and mm-hmm. um, had enormous kind of generosity and, and welcomes and, and um, got to talk to people in a way that you, you would never as just an ordinary tourist traveling mm. through mainly India and Sri Lanka. Mm. And what sort of insights were you seeing from those conversations? What were you hearing that a normal tourist wouldn't? Um, just understanding the disparities in wealth between um, India and, and the West mm-hmm. um, was, was very obvious. Um, I think also understanding that within, within those countries there was also a vast disparity of wealth um but there were people very much like the community leaders here who were working as hard as they could to make to make things better Mm -hmm. you know better for their for their communities and they had a very strong sense of 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 wanting not only the basics like water but also of wanting fairness and fair treatment for for their communities mm-hmm. did you get a sense you know sometimes those oes they help to solidify your identity um did you did you have a renewed sense of being a kiwi being from new zealand through those experiences or i, I or think not? i did but it was was mainly by landing in london right and realizing, so so I was about twenty six or twenty seven, I think, when we landed in London, and realizing that we weren't actually British, right? Because <laughs> <laughs> you know, I grew up with Janet and John books and 
Robin Redbreasts and Snow at Christmas and, you know, all those children's books we grew up with. And yeah. actually realising also that, that the British didn't regard us as, as part of them. So my grandmother, who was born here, and actually whose mother was born here, used to talk about England as home. Right. It's a fascinating thing, isn't it, when you think of the relationships. The, the, the little rabbit hole to explore there is when you think about the world wars and the calls that went out for young men to join, mm. particularly, I think, in World War I, you know, that for king and country would have resonated with the young men in New Zealand who'd, who'd never been to England as strongly yeah. as, as it did over there. Um, but the reality is that there was this vast separation and things had diverged and, and it was different. That's right. By the time we got there, it was. That's right. Whereas for mm. my father, it was the natural, completely natural thing to do. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. So um, did you consider extending your OE? Like it sounds like it was a really enlightening trip for a year. Did you think, well, we should stay longer or, or were you ready to come back? I think we were, I think we were ready to come back. Um, I was very keen to have children. Mm-hmm. You know, it was, no, it was, it was the right, was the right thing to do. We did actually, um, my husband did get offered a job when we were in Indonesia and we were actually talking about it the other night. And I said, you know, it would have been interesting if we'd stayed, but mm. we didn't, you know, we, we ran out Is of money he... and we came home. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You were ready to come home. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, it's, yeah. I, I did an OE with, I got married and we went for two years that became 11 years and it went Whoa. by, you know, just really quickly because we were we went to London first, and then we went to Japan, yeah. and then we went to Australia. So every destination was quite different, and we really loved it. But it was almost the snap of the fingers, and is that really a decade? Is <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it can happen easily if you're if you're not careful. The time goes by. <laughs> yeah. 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 So you get back to New Zealand, and did you have any reverse culture shock, or or like did it just feel yeah. natural and like you were back at home, or? I think it just felt completely, completely natural when a lot of our friends who'd been away were coming back at the same time and everyone was buying up old villas in the centre of the city and doing them up and, mm-hmm. you know, it was, yeah, it was just, it was what a lot of us did. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had, sorry, I've got these things coming in. Um, it's okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I can't turn them off. So. Um, yeah, no, it just felt, it felt like the right, the like right the time, right, yeah. right time, the right thing to do, yeah. Yeah, and you obviously in later years have gotten really involved with philanthropy and, mm. and been involved in different groups. Um, at what point did that accelerate, or or was the next few years? Uh, it sounds like um, coming back. Part of it was to have a family. Um, what what happened next? <laughs> <laughs> well, we came back. We bought a we bought a house in Wellington in the Arrow Valley. Mm-hmm. Um, a very cheap, very run-down house and, you know, did it up over a long period of time. We had three children and um, both of us were very involved in various community organisations. Mm-hmm. And I guess I started, um, I worked for the YWCA, I'd worked for Presbyterian Support, got involved in the local preschool, got involved in the local school committee and then... One day somebody said to me that Sir Roy McKenzie was looking for somebody to run his private foundation and he'd like to meet me. And I was getting ready to go back into the workforce and um, Harry, my husband, had been involved with a group of people starting one of the first community childcare centres in Wellington. So there was a childcare centre waiting, if you like, and the two, the two older children were at school. Mm-hmm. And I went down to the James Cook Hotel to meet Sir Roy McKenzie and... Um, walked out of his office with a job. Ah. <laughs> so that was, um, that was really interesting. And then I started working for him in 70, must have been 70, about 1970, 85, 86, sometime around then. 85 um, or 86, right, yep. Um, walked into his office on my first day, having, you know, dropped two children at school and one baby at, childcare and he um, looked at his office, his watch and he said, oh, that's good, you're early and um, then he gave me a trust deed a blank 
pad of paper, a pen and a check for a million dollars and said, let's go. And wow. I started the Roy McKenzie Foundation and I worked with him on it for eight years. Huh. And I and guess what, what I was able to do was bring them what I'd learned about community, both from sort of living in it, from overseas aid, from working in community organisations, from volunteering in community organisations. All of that just came together, working alongside someone who I think is one of New Zealand's most extraordinary philanthropists. Well, tell me about him. Well, his father, Sir John Robert McKenzie, was a, was a retailer and started McKenzie stores. And he was your absolutely classic, grew up very poor. Right. Started retail stores by the 1960s, was the wealthiest man in New Zealand. And... Um, started the J.R. McKenzie Trust, and Roy was his only surviving son. I and see. he had worked his way up through the business and in turn then started doing his own philanthropy. And he just had the most extraordinary open, both an open heart and an open mind. Hmm. And he's not unlike Sir Stephen Tyndall, um, someone who takes what they've learned in business and applies it to philanthropy, but doesn't isn't judgmental about community right um a very strong ear for for the least privileged but also wanting to find solutions mm. which i guess is what makes entrepreneurs like like sir roy and sir stephen so successful mm. so for example when when sir stephen and the group of businessmen um, chartered the plane recently to bring extra PPE gear to New Zealand. Mm. Had Sir Roy been alive, he would have done. He would have got a group of people to. If he thought New Zealand needed it, he would right. have been the kind of person. So, sort of a, a person of action, just person of just action and, and heart and compassion. Yeah. So, uh, you may not know, but in terms of his background, because I, I love that story, and I'm just thinking, growing up with privilege to still be sensitive in that way. Like, I wonder what it was that his father was able to pass on to his son that what, what, he, he didn't sort of get his own bubble around. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. What I think from having spoken to him and from having read his his memoir is that it, it was his mother. I think ah. his father was an extremely successful, quite um, driven businessman, but I think his mother hmm. was a very gentle and compassionate Right, so that's where he maybe learned. I think, that, I think that's where he got it from, yes. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Well, it sounds like a fantastic person to learn from. It was also a very, um, you know, I started a job without a job description. We hadn't even agreed on what I'd be paid. Mm -hmm. um, so, so working with him was more like working with a, alongside a colleague, really. And he just left me to get on, to get right. on with that. Right. So he, he had was, some he had some ideas, but basically here's some funds. Go yeah, he, and go and make it happen. He'd appointed a group of trusted trustees. Yeah. And we just worked together as a group of as a group of trustees. And trustees would bring ideas to the table and I would go away and look at them, or Roy would bring ideas to the table and I would go away and look at them. Yeah. It was an incredibly privileged position mm. to be in. And looking back on that time, you said it was about eight years that you were mm -hmm. involved there. What would be some of the highlights that really stick out? For me? I mean, I guess it was what, what the power of philanthropy could be, the power of convening. So, for example, we set up Philanthropy New Zealand. We brought, we, and through that, we brought a whole lot of philanthropists together who weren't really talking with each other. Right. So bringing them together and talking about how we could how we could tackle issues together. I think the other thing I learned from from Sir Roy, and there's a story that's a bit apocryphal, but sometime before I I went I met him, apparently some women who'd started the first women's refuge in Wellington had heard that there was someone in the James Cook Hotel in Wellington who might help them. So they made their way into his office in the in the James Cook Hotel and asked him for $1,500. And he said to them, you don't need 1500 you need 15000 And he pulled out his personal checkbook and wrote out the check. Wow. So I think what I learned from him was that spirit of generosity and trust and understanding that there are people in the community 
who really do have an insight into what the issues are that mm. their community faces mm. and who, who can be encouraged and nurtured. Mm. So the money, is, the money is part of it, but it's not all of it. Mm. So in a way, the money helps to catalyze the action by the people who know the situation. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And it must have been extraordinary for those women to walk away with that check. Mm. <laughs> it must have been just wonderful. Yeah, definitely. No, I love that story. So just you mentioned there about philanthropy New Zealand and, and bringing people together with a common goal. Can you describe a little bit more about that? Because I'm, I'm really interested in this concept, not just in charities, not-for-profit sector, but just generally that often we get into our own little silos and we know who we know. And it's actually really important to break across the silos and, mm, and, mm. and um, you know, that a, an academic can talk with a plumber and, you know, across professions that there's learnings that we can have. But, um, yeah, what was that like bringing people together to form something like Philanthropy New Zealand? I think, I think it was really interesting because in many ways philanthropists can be the worst at this because mm. many of them are self-made not always men, but largely self-made men. Mm. And they've made their money by um, battering down doors and backing themselves when no one else will back them. And so the challenge, I think, when you, when you bring, bring a group of people like that together is, is to get them to see how, if we all work together rather than competition with each other, we can, we can achieve something that's greater than the, you know, than the sum of the parts, really. Um, and also, I think that um, at, at the time that we set up Philanthropy New Zealand, I think I was probably the only person working in philanthropy who wasn't a former company accountant or company secretary. You know, so there was the beginnings of that recognition that in order to do philanthropy really effectively, that there was a role for, if you like, professionals who might bring a slightly different lens to to the process of making of making um, philanthropic grants and entering into relationships because mm -hmm. I guess it's recognizing that um, all the skills that those people have are really important and valuable but you can actually specialize into this and things like measuring yeah. impact you know That's how right. do you measure impact it's going to be different to how much profit did we make from this business it's quite yeah. different to how did we help this community of a low decile school or whatever, isn't it? That's right. That's right. Yeah. So what year was that that Philanthropy New Zealand was set up? Was that? It was 1990. 1990. Okay. Yeah. 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 Oh, interesting. And, and so what, what happened next with <laughs> your – I keep asking this, but – No, no, no. That's was, right. So when I went and worked for Roy, he, he told me that it was a terminating trust that, that he had set up. You know, so it's a spend-down endowment and, um, you know, that I would be out of a job in 10 years. And I thought, well, I've never been in a job for longer than three years, you know. So 10 right. years sounded like um, an impossible length of time. In mm -hmm. fact, I we, we spent the foundation down in eight years um, and ended up endowing a few projects, which is also quite a nice thing to do because when you do a spend-down, you, you have a capital sum. And at some point you can say, well, if we distributed the capital, what could you know what could grow for that so that was I mean that was quite a nice way to end it and then I was really fortunate that I was then employed as the executive director of the New Zealand Fulbright program oh, okay hmm. so I did that for 10 years and um, so what did that involve so that involved basically running a series of exchange exchange programs between New Zealand and the US basically academic yeah graduate student and public policy exchanges Mm. And it was just wonderful because I lived in the world of ideas. Mm. I lived in the worlds where you brought, you know, a leading American academic in Civil War history to New Zealand or you brought a leading political scientist or you had a whole bunch of bright-eyed graduate students who were all going to study zoology or geology or were going to go to the Antarctic. I mean, it was just wonderful. And at the same time, we were, we were selecting young New Zealanders either to go off on graduate student awards or to, um, for senior academics and public policy people to go on exchanges. Mm -hmm. And the thing that's wonderful about that is that I still hear of or run into 
you know, many of the people who went through the Fulbright program in those 10 years. And for example, it was just announced on national radio this morning that Jacinta Ruru has been appointed as the first Māori professor of law in New Zealand. And I mean, I remember interviewing her as a, wow. as a Fulbright grad before she went off to the States, you know, and it's, it's lovely. And I think um, that program, which, you know, Senator Fulbright set up in order to promote international peace and understanding mm. has, has, you know, proven the test of time. And I think it's provided a fantastic opportunity for a number of leading New Zealand thinkers to go to the States, to be exposed to, to the best of the best, but then to come back to New Zealand and bring those ideas and those experiences back to New Zealand. Mm. Was it typically that they would go to do like a master's or a PhD or was there yeah. a certain level yeah. that it yeah. would, yeah. there were no there were no undergrads. Yeah. So they were all postgrads or they were academics who might go for a semester. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And how many typically would be going over from New Zealand in, in a year? Did it vary or was it was probably fifteen to twenty in each way each year? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It must be fascinating, like you say, to now remember <laughs> the interviews with those people and think there's something coming with this person and then to see it decades later. Yeah. 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 It's really nice. <laughs> so you did that for 10 years, mm-hmm. you said? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And then at that point, the job of CEO of what was then called the ASB Community Trust came up and I had had my eye on it simply because of the size of what's now called Foundation North. It's the largest philanthropic trust in New Zealand. It's the second largest in Australasia. Mm-hmm. And I just had a sense that you could do so much with, mm-hmm. you know, with a, with a foundation of, a, of an endowment of over, of over a billion dollars. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the job just came up at the right time for me. Um, our children had all left home uh, and um, I was able to, be offered the job, move mm-hmm. to Auckland, and then embark on a 15-year role running running this extraordinary philanthropic trust. Yeah. So what years was that then? Because you just so finished up like last year. 2000, 2004 to 2000. Um, yeah, I finished up last year, 19, yeah. 2019. Yeah. So, and when you first joined, what, what sort of things was it involved in? And then how did it change over how time? Did it change? Um, well, the interesting thing about, about ASB Community Trust is it's one of the trusts set up from the sale of the Trustee Savings Banks in, in 1988. Mm-hmm. And so there's 12 of them across, across the country. And the, the trustees are appointed by the government of the day. And um, so there's a, there's, a, there's a very big board. There's a board of 15. Um, but as I said, in, you know, in a grants budget that's anything between 30 and 45 million dollars a year which is you know really significant in New Zealand yeah and so when I'd been offered the job and I was actually still living in Wellington and I got a call one day from Kevin Prime who's the chair of the board and he said to me oh the trustees want to have a strategic planning day I said you know we'd like me to start planning for it before you come and I said that's fine and he said well you know we can either do it on 4th of October or the 15th and I said, well, the 4th of October is my first day and you don't usually do a strategic plan on your first day. He said, oh, well, it's October the 15th then. <laughs> <laughs> Two weeks into my, into my new role, we went off on a, on a one-day retreat. Right. Um, came out at the end of it thanks to an extraordinary woman called Genevieve Timmins, who I've done quite a lot of work with, who actually um, lives in Australia, but has done quite a lot of work in philanthropy in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. And at the end of that day, we came out with, you know, basically the, the, the framework of a strategic plan mm. that we then set about implementing mm. and over about a, a probably a five-year period, just slowly worked through the, if you like, the portfolio of the different areas where grants were being made and um, commissioned a number of pieces of, of research, which is something I don't think anyone in New Zealand philanthropy had done before. We just looked in depth at um, what are the issues, for example, in the environment in Auckland and Northland? What are the issues in education? What are the issues in health? Mm. What are the issues in sport and rec? And then kind of worked with the board on honing those down and slowly making the funding more strategic, more proactive, mm-hmm. um, more community focused. Mm-hmm. Um, and every so often I'd, I'd sort of 
you know, come up for air and think, am I done yet? And then I'd say no, and we'd kind of dive down into it again. And um, it was an extraordinary journey. And um, So it sounds like just picking up on that part, you know, understanding in more depth what's actually going on so that you can, because sometimes organizations are very reactive, aren't they? Yeah. Like, there's, there's an issue, there's a problem, we have money, let's come in and fix it. Whereas actually the, the, the better use in the word you said proactive would be to understand the dynamics, know what's going on, and then bring in the resources to, to hopefully not just be the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff. Right? Right. And I think, I think the other trap in philanthropy is, is to be, if you're totally driven by the applicants, you mm -hmm. don't always hear from the community, who, who, those sectors of the community that need the money the most. So some, there are some people, and good on them, who are very, very good at applying for money and who apply for very large amounts of money. But if you don't have any kind of lens over the issue, you don't really have any way of knowing whether this is going to, um, going to be you know, the, the most appropriate expenditure in that community. And then I think the whole, the, I think what many of us in New Zealand have learned, particularly in the last decade, is you just have to stop doing two communities. You have to stop parachuting programs in that very well-meaning people have filled up, but that actually just go straight over the over the top of the community because the community wasn't in, involved in any way right. in either the problem definition, you know, the program design, the implementation, the evaluation. Mm. So that's, I guess, getting on board with the grassroots movements or the green shoots that are emerging anyway in a community so that they're it's being led from within rather than yeah. somebody coming in and saying, here's your solution. Yeah. Here's this program that, you know, we think you need. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Which is, which is not to say, I think that, that you, it doesn't mean you just fund everything you're asked to fund. Mm. You still have to, you still have to run a really rigorous lens over it. Um, and, you know, lots of people want to build buildings. Mm. So they see a problem and the first thing they want to do is build a building. So, you know, sometimes you have to have, sometimes a building is really important. So, you know, helping refurbish a marae is probably a really, really important thing to do. Mm. But building a new school hall may make no difference to the educational outcomes of a, of a community. You know, so you have to, um, you have to be able to think really clearly mm. and really deeply about what's the issue we want to address and is this the best way? Mm. And I guess it? that comes back to that word strategy and having the longer term vision, because it would be easy to put in an annual report. Here's a picture of the building that we built and now everything's much better in a way. The harder answer would be there's a, now a mentoring program, which means that these children have people that they're going to be connected with for the next 15 years, you know, and there's no immediate result, but there's a lot of seeds that are being sown through a program like that. But you can't, you know, it's not a glossy picture in That's the, right. yeah. In the annual report, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Interesting. I'm also keen, because you would have done a lot of this, you mentioned the strategy day away. Um, what insights have you got in terms of what, what makes a good strategy? And yeah. how can organizations um, think proactively about that what are the what are the elements that they need to to bring in because we have a lot of listeners from across a wide variety of businesses and entrepreneurs and charities and not-for-profits and philanthropists as well but in your in your experience and also having provided funding for a number of organizations what are some of them missing when it comes to that strategy element well, I've, I've also done quite a lot of strategic planning with other philanthropic trusts over the years. People have invited me in to, to do it. And what mm -hmm. often strikes me when I go into, say, a philanthropic trust is people really don't know what they don't know. So their assumption is because they live in a community, they know that community and they know what the issues are or the problems are or the priorities should be. Mm. So, so the way I've kind of developed the strategy work that I do now is first of all, you have to take your group of decision makers, whether they're staff or trustees or a mixture of both through a process of really looking at their community. And sometimes it's just looking at data. Mm. You know, sometimes it's just looking at 
um, what are the health issues that face this community? What are the what's the what are the what's the educational um, achievement compared with another community? Mm. You know, because because otherwise, I think people tend to operate on an, on on assumptions that are well-meaning but completely invalid. Mm. And I think, particularly in in New Zealand, most recently, is working with a group of with a board um, on finding a way to hear the voice of the voices within within their community because mm. you can do a most beautiful strategic planning exercise on a whiteboard mm. and you know you can come up with a lovely plan but it, but at the end of the day it may be no relationship to to what happens mm. actually in that community or what the community's needs are yeah. And how and how you address them. So mm. things like talking about who really are the stakeholders of this organisation, mm. um, and it isn't always the people that speak loudest. Mm. So so finding a way of of hearing those voices and guess, incorporating those voices. Yeah, filtering through all the voices, right? And and hearing. Mm. And I guess what you're talking about is the skill of listening, being able yeah. to listen to the communities, the individuals, and then actually hear what's going on. Do you have any tips about how to be a good listener? You know, if you're if you're collating that, what have you? Is there a way that you've found is effective? Do you have to send people out to go face to face or door to door or surveys or how would you go about doing that process? Mm. I think I think in many say for example, I mean the community I probably know best are communities in say South Auckland or in Northland. Mm-hmm which are predominantly Māori and Pacific, and you need to go into those communities with Māori and Pacific staff and trustees and meet with them on a marae or in a church and understand, behave in a way that is, that is one hopes, culturally appropriate and learn to listen to the issues that are articulated by those communities mm-hmm. and um, go on a journey. I mean, I think we, we've learned a lot in philanthropy about, about how, how, how we can engage with Māori or with Pacifica or increasingly with refugee and migrant mm. communities in Auckland. Um, and I think just learning to take it to take it quietly, mm. and, and maybe, not to assume that you know the answers. Yeah, maybe leaving the space, leaving the mm. let the question sit for a while, and don't fill it up with what you think. Yeah, but let other people speak. Mm. 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 And you know, um, understanding that if you go, on, if you're invited onto a marae. Um, it may take half a day before before you have a conversation, mm. and that that's an important way to spend to spend the time in order in order to engage with with that particular community. Mm. But I do think the other piece for philanthropy is you can't be all things to all people. So at some point you have to say we are going to focus on this. And then being really clear with the community so you don't raise a whole lot of expectations that you can't meet. So I think it's quite valid for you to go through a strategic planning process and at the end of the day be clear with the community about what your priorities will be Mm. and then move within those parameters because, you know, we're not the Bill Gates Foundation. Mm -hmm. We don't have that kind of access to resources I'm on the um, Vodafone New Zealand Foundation, which is the corporate, you know, the foundation for for Vodafone Mm -hmm. New Zealand, and we have an annual budget of $2 million. Mm -hmm. And the Vodafone Foundation, before my time, made a really clear decision about focusing on 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 at-risk or high-need youth. Mm -hmm. And so there are a whole lot of other projects that people would like to come to that foundation for help, but the they're not eligible, and that's actually fine. And it's important that, that that particularly small foundations are really clear about what their focus areas are. And then you're being clear, you're being transparent, you're not wasting anybody's time. 
And it, yeah, it, it's stimulating so many thoughts here. That's why I'm, I'm wondering where to go next. But one of the things that you've, you've said, and I think it's really interesting, I'm just thinking back to your eight years with Roy, uh, Sir Roy, and the fact that your mandate was to get rid of the money. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. it wasn't just set up like it will still be here a hundred years from now. Yeah. One of the dangers I see sometimes, I'm not sure exactly where we're going to go here, but one of the dangers sometimes is that it feels like charities or groups continue to perpetuate and, and keep going because they've always kept going. Yeah. And I wonder sometimes if, um, you know, you kind of want to do yourself out of a job, don't you? Yes, if, you do. If you, if you do it well, then you won't be needed anymore. But sometimes the apparatus can get in the way and it becomes yeah. more of a, a career thing or a, you know, it's just, a, it's always been, so it always will be. I, I don't know. Do you have any thoughts well, no, no, about that's that? absolutely right. When I was running the Fulbright program, we also helped with the Eisenhower Fellowships and an Eisenhower Fellow came over to New Zealand who, and it was a lovely young woman who ran a food bank in um, Durham, North Carolina. And I sent her to the Auckland City Mission to meet the city missioner and um, she came to my office absolutely stunned because she said in Durham, North Carolina, this young woman's um, KPIs were based on feeding more families and getting more food into the warehouse. And she just had a conversation with the city missioner, which was actually about getting people off food parcels. Right. You know, so turn yeah. turn the problem on its head. And I'm sure the current city missioner would also say that, you know, has... Yeah, has you want to do yourself out of a job. Out of a job. So that we, we don't want any more rough sleepers in Auckland. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. Which um, I then guess, it, just picking up on that, in terms of philanthropy, it must be hard sometimes for some organizations or philanthropists who have the funds. Like, how do you, how do you tell that you're not just perpetuating something that probably needs to be wound up or finish and find new ways of doing it or new green shoots that are emerging? I think that's where you have to move beyond just looking at the applications that came in over the web or that the postman brought to you. That's where I think you need those people both on your staff and on your trustees who have that stronger sense of you know of connectedness and into the community you know the the, um, churches like the Presbyterian Church and the Anglican Church used to have huge brick orphanages all over Auckland Mm. Um, and at some point obviously people in those institutions society changed over time and gradually the need for the churches to run those orphanages you know, eventually went away. And mm. at some point, you know, the, the church must have realised that, that that was no longer something that they either could or should be offering. But I do wonder, and we haven't really talked about COVID, but I do wonder if this huge disruption to society will also be a disruption to the not-for-profit sector. Mm. And if it isn't going to provide not only an opportunity but a necessity but for, for groups and the not for, you know, for different organisations in the not-for-profit sector to think about mm. collaborations, mergers, because there is a lot of competition in the, in the not-for-profit sector and that becomes pretty obvious when the applications come out. I mean, the interesting thing is when you're sitting around the table of a philanthropic trust and you've got, you know, it used to be literally a pile of applications. Yeah. And you see three or four groups fundamentally wanting to offer the same service into the same community. And always one of the trustees will say, why are the five of them? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I think, you know, I work as a lawyer, so I help set up charities from time to time. And, um, well, more than from time to time, I'm doing a lot of it. But one of my first questions to the people is quite a hard question, which is, is there anyone else already doing what you want to do? Because you may just be duplicating something. And I would hate, you know, for this charity, new charity is here and there's already one down the road, which is literally doing the same thing. And now they're competing and, and, and the resources of having the trustees to help with governance and the planning, the strategies, surely we could come together and, but for better or worse, sometimes people are entrepreneurial and it, you know, 
the ego maybe gets in the way sometimes and it's this is my thing or this is this is the offering that I have to bring, which I respect, but I think as well it's that question of is there too much duplication? I think I think there'll be a big sort out. Yeah. In the next yeah. in the next two to three years probably. Yeah. Well, we had connected at Philanthropy New Zealand Conference, a, uh, well, in May last year, I think it, it was. And then just recently, we connected again on some calls about what's the response to COVID-19 from the charity NGO community sector. And certainly, there was a call today. And that was what we were talking about is how can we be proactive here? How can we embrace the opportunities that are there as well as all the negative things, what are the opportunities here? Mm. And one of the things people were saying is some groups have a huge increase in demand for volunteers, whereas other groups have a decrease in demand. So can we match up the groups somehow and say, well, you've got 15 staff and you no longer need that many, but this group here needs 15 staff and how can we allocate people more efficiently to, to respond? Mm, that's good. I'm really pleased those conversations are happening. Mm, yeah. Well, it has to start somewhere, doesn't it? You gotta, that's right. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Look, at, look at the positives. Yeah. So just thinking back over your career and all the things that you've been involved with, is there any other messages or things that um, you'd reflect on that, I don't know, it's the classic question, but things that you wish you'd known when you first began in the philanthropy space or things that you've observed over the years that you think we don't talk enough about? I think philanthropy is very precious, and I mean that in, in the positive way, and I think it's really important that it doesn't get sucked into what's essentially what the government can and must provide. You know, in New Zealand, the philanthropic sector is relatively small, mm -hmm. and um, we have a welfare state, and this, this government is showing that the government can step in, and I, and I don't want, I want philanthropy to keep on being innovative, being agile, being strategic, being proactive, and um, leading the way in terms of change, whether it's you know modelling change in the in the environment sector or the social sector or the arts mm. sector, mm. Um, not getting into funding the status quo. Mm. Yeah, that's good. One of the things that I've been seeing a lot of recently is the rise of the term impact investing. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if you've been observing that as well, but that the idea that people might go to philanthropists or other groups that have money and not ask for $15,000 in a grant, but instead ask for $15,000 as an investment and yeah. that actually there'll be some return back so that the 15,000, you know, in a year or two years, you'll get it back with some interest mm. and then it can be reallocated to another person. Um, so that's quite interesting to watch. I'm, I'm seeing quite a lot in that area or that space growing. I think it's got huge, huge potential and it's, it's much more congruent, I think, for, for, you know, generations younger than I am. It mm. makes much more sense, I think, with, with the way that, that people in their 20s, 30s, Maybe yeah. even forties think. I, d I do think it's. I do think it's absolutely the way of the future. And if it means that that the capital eventually comes back, then it's 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 the only logical way forward, really. Yeah, yeah. It's very exciting. Yeah. Well, that's the word that's everyone's using it. But impact. You know, how do yeah. we how do we create impact? How do we have impact? That's you know, impact measurement, impact investment, impact enterprise. Um, I think that's the that's what we're talking about at the moment, isn't it? Mm, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's good. Is there anything else that you wanted to cover or that you thought you know, might be helpful for people to hear from, from your own journey? No, I don't think so. This has, been, this has been interesting. I've enjoyed it a lot. Oh, good, yeah. Well, I actually find sometimes people will send me emails afterwards and they'll say, that was a chance for me to reflect on my own stages and, and put myself back, you know, when I was at university and, and remember. So um, hopefully it's a useful exercise for the guest as well. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, but yeah, thank you for coming on. And I really appreciate it just to hear your insights and even back to your childhood, you know, that the, the community element that was there even when you were six years old and then just seeing how it sort of played through your life, you know, you going teaching for a year, realizing it wasn't for you, but 
I think that year probably shaped you in terms of understanding communities and what they're actually going through. And then going overseas, getting exposure, coming back with that knowledge and having the chance to work um, in a brand new initiative for eight years. It sounds like that had a big influence as well mm. on, on what came later. So yeah, I just want to say thank you very much for coming on the podcast and um, sharing your insights. Great. Thanks. Well, I do hope you enjoyed that conversation with Jenny. I know for me, there were several things that stood out. In particular, those observations around strategy. What is it that makes a good strategy? And what does it really involve to listen to the community that you want to help? If you enjoyed this episode, you might want to check out some of the others in the back catalog because there's more than 170 there. There's also a bunch of content at theseeds.nz. And there's a Facebook page, a LinkedIn page, a Twitter account. So you can connect in those ways as well. Mm-hmm.